A number of years ago, a, a pastor friend of mine named, named Tom was, uh, he was heading into the church. He had a morning meeting, and as he was going in, uh, it, was, it was December, and it was sleeting, and uh, that made him notice that on the golf course was some guy in a poncho out there hitting sand wedges in like 45-degree sleet. I mean, he was just coming down, and you know, he kind of thought, man, that guy's committed right there, and he just kind of went on and went into the office, got settled, and then his morning meeting showed up, and in walks Scott, soaking wet. And um, he says, ah, sorry, I'm a little late. Sorry, I'm wet. I just got off the golf course. I was, uh, I was, I was practicing my sandwich. So Tom said, okay, sit down, let's talk. So they started talking, and uh, Tom asked him, so what's going on? And, uh, and Scott said to him, he said, well, I just feel like my walk with God is, is just kind of dry. I feel like things aren't really, aren't really going well. Uh, my, my quiet times are kind of sparse. My prayer life, it's kind of eh, here and there. Um, don't really have good fellowship, don't really seem to be having opportunities for evangelism, and he just kind of went on and on about how he, he was feeling dry and, and, and not really being used by God. So Tom asked me, he said, so Scott, what do you think the problem is? And Scott said to him, you know, Tom, I think I'm just not disciplined enough. And uh, Tom leaned back in his chair and he said, actually, Scott, I, I don't think that's the problem at all. You actually may be the most disciplined human on the planet. You were just out hitting sandwiches in a typhoon. He's like, what do you, what do you mean you're not disciplined? And then he said, I have permission to, to speak freely. And uh, Scott said, yes. And he's, Tom said to him, the problem doesn't seem to be that you aren't committed or disciplined. The problem is that you're committed and disciplined in the things that glorify you. He says, what builds your kingdom seems to be at the top of your list. You want to make a lot of money, you want to have a solid golf game, and you want to be seen in a particular light by people. Scott, it seems that you have a problem with priorities. I I suspect Scott's not alone in his problem with priorities. Now, now is he? Uh, I bet that if we were to examine our lives and check our credit card statements and our calendars and our internet history maybe take some surveillance footage from our daily life i i bet it would be shown that we all struggle with the problem of of priorities whether it's working too much or whether it's maybe watching a little too much tv or maybe a couple too many games on our phone or you know knowing that it's 45 days until nfl could kick off or um Whatever the thing may be for you, there are countless things that are always calling for our time, our attention, our devotion. Some are really good things. Some of them are not good at all. Some of them may be neutral, as it were. But I think we all need to pause and to ponder our priorities. So to help us do this, we're going to go to the book of Haggai. Another one of those books that you wouldn't be sure if it's really a book or not, but it is. Haggai. So if you don't have a Bible, it's going to be really helpful for you to follow along because we kind of go verse by verse through these sections of Scripture. It's on page 791 in the Bibles that are in in front of you there. Um, If you you don't uh, don't want to use one of those Bibles, you just go to the Old Testament, hang a left, a couple books, and you'll find the two-chapter book, the book of Haggai. 
While you're getting there, let me give you a little bit of context about what's going on in this story, because this is kind of really important to understand uh, the message that we've got here. So God chose a people to be his own, the nation of, of, of Israel. He gave them his law so they'd know who he, wo- who he was and what it was that he wanted them to do. These people were, were set apart to, to love God, to enjoy God, to worship him with their lives. And God blessed them. He like blessed their socks off. He gave them, he gave them their own land so that there they would be free to have protection from God and provision from God. And he, he promised that he would be for them as long as they were devoted to him. Well, in their history, they cried out and they said, we want a king so that we can be like the rest of the nations. And God says, no, you don't. He says, I'm your king. And they said, yeah, we do. We want to be like the rest of the nations. He said, no, you don't. He said, yeah, you do. He said, okay. So God says, I'll give you a king. So he gives him a king, a king named Saul. He's a bad, bad king. Then God raised up another king after him, a king named David, who was a man after God's own heart, who actually wrote the psalm that we read earlier this morning. Then David had a son, his name's Solomon. Solomon was filthy rich, wicked smart. He was like blessed beyond belief, had everything that anybody would ever want. But he turned away to idols. Solomon had a weak spot for wealth and for women and ultimately for idols. And because of that, God judged the nation of Israel. And he split the nation into two parts. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, uh, when you read through that part of the Old Testament in Kings and Chronicles, it's like watching the Sopranos. It's a bad deal. They had 18 kings. Everybody's killing each other. It's just, it's a mess. Bad kings the whole way through. God's sending prophets saying, listen, turn to me. They didn't do it. Then in the southern kingdom, so then, I'm sorry, in in, uh, 722 B.C., the Assyrians came and took away the northern kingdom of Israel and took them off into captivity. Then, meanwhile, down, down south in the southern kingdom, you've got these two tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin, and they're a little bit better. You've got some good kings, but still just a bunch of messed up kings as well. And in 586, they get taken away into captivity by Babylon. So Syria, Babylon, take away God's people. The, the temples burn down. The city's just obliterated. And God's people are off in exile, being slaves. But God, in his mercy, then delivered them. And he brought them back into the nation of Israel in around 586. Uh, and he sent them back under the decree of a, of a Persian ruler named Cyrus. And he told them, go back, and I want you to build the temple. So, Zerubbabel, in 586 B.C., you can look all this up, it's all historical stuff, goes back with about 50,000 of the Jews, and they get to work. And this is big time for Israel, because the temple, like, this is where God's presence dwells, and they're excited to be there with him. And then, then the, the king of Persia sent a letter commanding Israel to stop the work. And in Ezra chapter 4, which kind of chronicles this whole time, it's another book of the Bible that talks about this time in history, at the end of that book, at the end of chapter 4, it says that by force and power, they made them cease. So, so Persia sends some guys in, puts a smack down on these, these Jews who are rebuilding the temple, and the work stops for 14 years. And so God sends two prophets, a guy named Zechariah and a guy named Haggai, to come and restart the work. So this guy, Haggai, he's one of the prophets that came to say, wake up, we need to get back to work. And he, he's who we'll be hearing from 
this, this morning. Now, as we go through this section of Scripture, we're going to see that there's a difference between what God was calling them to do and God's calling us to do. So God was calling them to rebuild the temple, to get back at it. For us, God doesn't call us to build uh, buildings and cathedrals. Like, that's not the main work. Now, we can have a building where we meet. That's fine. But this is not what it's about. Rather, there's a true temple who is the church, who is the people of God, that we are to be uh, following Jesus, becoming more devoted in following Jesus, and then helping people who right now who don't follow Jesus start following him. We're to be disciples who make disciples. That's the work that we are to be about. And I think you'll see that played out as we go through here. Now, to help us do this, we're going to be just in Haggai chapter 1 this week. Next week, we'll check out chapter 2. But um, we're going to see kind of two big ideas that are going to guide our time together. The first is that we need to consider our problem with priorities. Consider our problem with priorities. That's verses 1 through 11. And the second part, verses 12 through 15, we're going to see that we need to commit to do God's work in God's strength. We need to commit to do God's work in God's strength. Unless you be really nervous, the first point is a lot longer than the second point. So if you think, wow, we're never going to get to lunch, we will. Um, the first point is a lot longer than the second. Let's look at it now. In verses 1 through 11, we're going to consider our problem with priorities. I'll read that for us. In the second year of Darius the king, he was a Persian king, in the sixth month on the first day of the year, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're never filled. You clothe yourselves, but you're never warm. He who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth on man and beast, on all their labors. That's your first 11 chapters and this first message that comes from Haggai to the people. And you'll notice there that God gives it there in verse 1 to two guys. You've got Zerubbabel and you've got Joshua. So Zerubbabel is a governor. He's from the line of David. So if you look in Matthew 1, he's the great, 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 great granddaddy of Jesus. He's in that line. Then you've got Joshua, who's the high, the high priest, who's the guy who kind of oversaw the spiritual condition for the nation. So this, this word from the hand, he's like, a, he's like a mailman, comes from the hand of Haggai, comes to the head of church and state, as it were, comes to the religious leaders and says, hear this message from God. 
end. What's the message? Well, again, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, you'll remember, the Lord had delivered this nation out of exile and brought them back into the land. And Ezra 1, we saw Cyrus give this decree. Um, Well, God gave it through Cyrus to rebuild the temple. As I said, this would have been the greatest joy for this nation. They get to worship again in the land that God had given them. This this is a wonderful time of, of celebration. But... They stopped working for 14 years. 14 years. And why? Because they faced opposition. We read earlier about how the Persian king came and said stop and by force made it happen. So, I mean, he's pushing them around, stole their shovels, you know, um, and, and shut down the work. Now, on the one hand, we can understand why they retreated. I mean, you know, they, they were being persecuted. And there are times when God's people are being persecuted and they mean, may need to stop the work for, for a season. Uh, Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, 23, when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. And there's times for that. I mean, Paul got lowered down in a basket and fled uh, Damascus. I mean, there, there's times where we may need to, to lay low and pray and plan and seek God's face and ask Him for grace and wisdom of how to get back into the work. But that's not what this crew did. No, these, these people had put a pause on the work, but they never pushed play again. And as they did, you know, I, I bet it was probably tough at first because, I mean, this was the greatest thing they could imagine. But, but over time, it, it became the new normal for them. It became the new normal. They kind of got used to the ruins. They kind of got used to the rubble. And yeah, maybe we'll put the weed eater to it every once in a while. But I mean, like, you know, it's, it's kind of, it, it, it is what it is. They had grown cold in their calling and they had gotten used to doing other things. That's kind of how it goes, isn't it? Have you ever seen that happen in, in your life? That we get distracted from the work that God has called us to. And the next thing that we know that kind of distance from the Lord is kind of the new normal. Bible reading, ah, maybe, maybe every once in a while, you know, if we're struggling with something, maybe we'll look up something or, or maybe we'll read a little bit here, a little bit there. Prayer time, you know, if we really need something or we're about to, uh, to pray or if we're around other people, they're going to see us pray, you know, we're going to pray then. But, but there's, there's not real times of stepping away and having a half an hour or an hour just before the Lord and leading with him. Fellowshipping with other believers and kind of become, you know, listen, we're busy, we got stuff to do, you know, we got a remodeling project, we got this going on, we got, you just kind of get, you get used to not coming together. Evangelism, yeah, listen, I know there's a lot of people out there who need to know Jesus, but yeah, it takes a lot of, I mean, when am I going to, when am I going to build relationships with people who don't know Jesus? I'm like, when am I going to hang out with them? And like, a lot of, you know, or, or, you know, I mean, I'm in a really hostile environment. If I say anything about Jesus, I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be like gasoline on fire. I can't, I can't do that. And, and it kind of becomes the new normal where we, we kind of go through the motions, kind of fly under the radar, do enough to keep up appearances sometimes, but we learn to live with that, that dryness and that distance from the Lord. And that seems to be what had happened here with Israel. 
They wouldn't have said that building the temple was unimportant. They would have just said, it's not time yet. They had said, let's let's wait another day. The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And that's, to be honest with you, I remember when I was was in college and someone started talking to me about Jesus, like I kind of wanted to just put it off when I didn't, this was before I knew the Lord. I mean, so you can do this as a, whether you're coming to Jesus or you're walking with Jesus. So you just kind of like, well, not now, maybe later, maybe after I get out of school or maybe after I get enough money or maybe after I retire and then I'll live for God. Like Augustine's famous prayer, Lord, give me purity and self-control, but just not yet. That was before he was converted. He knew it was a good thing, but he wasn't ready to, he wasn't ready to surrender yet. Well, God doesn't think that's a good idea. And that's why he sent the prophet to speak to, did you notice what he calls them there? These people. That's an odd statement, because normally God's like, these are my people. I bought them, I'm protecting them, they're mine. But right now, they're not acting like his, because they're not committed to the things that he has called them to do. So he calls them these people. Verse 3 and 4, here's that message. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? God says, you know, it seems like your calendar is pretty full when it comes to to working uh, for the things that I've called you to do. But strangely enough, you seem to be working things into your schedule that, that bring you a lot of pleasure. And it seemed to build your kingdom. You've got time to build your own paneled houses, don't you? These paneled houses were kind of the custom hope, home, um, custom-built homes of the day. So in Israel, you normally built with, with, with stone because it was accessible, it was affordable, it was kind of right there. But if you're going to build with paneling, which was kind of a luxury, what you had to do is either go up to the hills or you go up to Phoenicia. You got to go up, you got to cut you some timber, you got to bring it down, you got to bring it back, you got to refinish it, you got to do everything you got to do. And that is a costly time investment, a lot of effort. Well... That's what was happening here. So, so when God asks this question, like he's dropping some serious sarcasm. So if you're opposed to sarcasm, every once in a while, God will drop it, and he drops it real thick right here. When he says, is it time? Is it time? Because you said it wasn't time to do what I told you to do, but sure enough, seems like you got some other time, don't you? He's saying, you know, I, I don't know if it's just me, but I noticed it in time to do what I called you to do or what pleases me, but it appears you've always got time to do what glorifies you. Listen, you don't have a problem with your schedule. You have a problem with your priorities. Those are some hard words. And I I think that it's loving for God to say them. Because he, he exposed here in their lives something that was separating them, not only from him, but from all the good that he had for them. It is loving for God to, to correct. So he exposed them by this truth. And in that moment, when God said, is it time? What he's doing is he's showing that all of their reasons and all of their excuses and all of their good intentions and justifications and all of that really doesn't hold up any water at all. Because it The reality is that you're not doing what I called you to do, says the Lord. They put their own preferences, purposes, and pleasures in front of God's. What about 
for the us. Do you think this idea could, could apply to us, this principle about priorities? What do, you, what do you think we'd hear if God were to speak to us? D.A. Carson said that Americans work at their play, play at their worship, and worship their work. Is that true of you? What if, what if we were to do, or what if God were to do, the one who knows all things, were to do a little bit of an examination of our time, our talents, and our treasures? What, what would he find? What if he took our calendars and our, our checkbooks and our credit card statements? What would, he sh- what would be shown as being a priority in our lives? We should probably listen along to what he tells them here in verse 5. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. So God intervenes here in their misguided lives, and he calls them to take some time for introspection. Consider your ways, he says. The word for consider literally means set your heart on. Set your heart on your ways. Evaluate them deeply. Come humbly. Come honestly. This is eternally important. Consider your ways. Because you get one shot at this life. That's it. There's one shot, and it's now. And we need to consider whether, whether our priorities are honoring the Lord. Because they had a problem with priorities. And God sent this prophet to kind of give them a splash of cold water in the face. To wake them up and alert to the fact that they just wasted 14 years. God's time. And I trust that we as American Christians may need this same splash as well. We say that we're too busy to have time in God's word or to pray or to have discipleship relationships, but all the while we seem to be able to structure our time in such a way to get to the gym. And some of you are like, oh, I'm not guilty yet. All right, so some of you don't, some of us do. All right, don't worry. We'll put it on you in a second, so. Maybe there's certain sales. You, you're going to find a way to get there. I mean, people get just up and stupid around Christmas time. I mean, they just show up at all kinds of ungodly hours. Cause you, and you can make yourself get there if you want to. I wasn't calling you stupid if you went to the sales. Um, tea times. If, you're gonna, if you want to get on the golf course, you're going to find a way to get there to make your tea time. If your favorite team's playing, you're going to find a way to make to watch that game, especially if somebody's got tickets and you can go. This week, I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning to go fishing. I did that on purpose. Like, I actually did that on purpose, you know, because, because it was important. I wanted to do that. It, it made time for it. So we should be really careful to say that we aren't disciplined enough to have time with God. Because most of us are either in the process of or had eight to ten or more years of school that we were disciplined enough to find how to pay for, to be able to make it through, to graduate or still be striving at graduating so that we can build our lives to do what we want to do. It's not an issue of time. We say we don't have time, but we sure seem to be able to pick up the newspaper instead of the scriptures in the morning. We can check our emails instead of have prayer time. 
We say we don't have time, but we, we can make time for our favorite TV shows and movies and, of, of course, the amount of time we spend on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter. In fact, Joe Carter, who did a post for the, um, the Gospel Coalition this past week, said that Facebook users spend 10.5 billion minutes on that site. That's 20,000 years. And that's not counting the time for mobile devices that easily doubles it. Facebook users share 685,000 pieces of content every minute. And at the same time, roughly 58 million tweets are sent every day. That's 9,100 tweets per second. And on top of that, a 2012 study showed that 181 million American Internet users watched just under 40 billion videos in one month. John Piper rightly said that one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. We should consider our ways. What about priorities with money? Well, on average, American church members give just 2.58% of their income, while one in four don't give anything at all. Now, I want to say that this church is a generous church, and I praise God for that. That is, that is good, but I suspect that we can still consider our, our ways. We are called to be a generous people who faithfully support getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. But many would say that they just they can't give because they don't have enough money. But why don't we have enough money? Because we sure seem to be able to have enough money to pay for HDTV and new smartphones every year, and an iPad, and new clothes, and new cars, and meals out a lot of nights, and remodeling projects, and $5 cup of coffee several times a week. Now, I'm going to go ahead and pause, and I want to, I want to say that it's not evil to use money to buy things. I'm also going to say that it's not evil to, buy, to use money to buy things that you need, like food and clothes and a home and stuff like that. I want to also say that it's not necessarily evil to, to buy luxuries, like TV or smartphones or Internet in your home or a nice vacation. Now, notice I put those under luxuries. Because they are. Now, culture says, no, this is not. This is a necessity. I need internet or I will die. Actually, people live for a really long time without the internet. <laughs> Believe it or not, they did. It was amazing. They just did normal stuff. <laughs> so there is much freedom in Christ. And I'm not trying to build, you know, bring this guilt trip about, you know, seeing the movies of the devil or buying a new pair of shoes as you're going to hell. I mean, like, I'm not, I'm not bringing that kind of stuff. But I am saying that we need to consider our ways. I suspect most of us, if our credit card statements came up on the PowerPoint right now and we were to go through, we might be embarrassed to show how it is that we really use our money. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it's a lot more than just what are you doing. It's, it's the heart that's tied with it. Because historically speaking, we are the most wealthy people in the history of the world. And I'm not sure if you know this or not, but 
If you have at least $34,000, you're among the richest 1% in the world today. The richest 1% in the world today. And to whom much is given, much is required. We should consider our ways. So whether we've shrunk back from the front lines of evangelism and discipleship and serving those who are in need because we face persecution, or we've traded our commitment to the Great Commission for comforts, we should hear God's word from Haggai and make sure that we do a humble inventory of our lives because God opposes those who reject him and reject his ways. He's a patient God, but he's also a God who will not allow his children to stay with hearts that are postured against him. That because he loves his children, the Lord disciplines those that he loves. And he did that with the nation of Israel. We see that in verse 6 and following, where God calls Israel to look at their circumstances because he had set himself against their prosperity. Verse 6, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but whatever, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but nobody's warm. He who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. All your investments just going away. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Verse 10, therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth below you has withheld its produce. I've surrounded you, as it were, with, with, with me being against you. Verse 11, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, what grows forth from the ground, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So God says to this nation who's put him on the back burner, he says, how's it going for you down there? Not so well, huh? And the reason, because God had markedly set himself against them. In verse 11, he said, I called for the drought on all your stuff. In verse 9, when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away because my house lies in ruins while you're busy building your house. Now, can God do that? Can, can God graciously up and shut down every one of your plans and rock your world to get your attention? You bet he can do that. How many of you have ever done that before? Most of us. All right, good. And this shouldn't have surprised Israel because this is actually part of the Mosaic Covenant in Deuteronomy 28. He told them, here's the deal. I'm going to bless you in amazing ways, but when you give your heart to another, and you chase after idols, I am going to set myself against you in ways that will make the hair stand up on your neck. I will curse you if you turn away to idols. And that's exactly what they had done. In their greed and in their selfishness, they'd put God on the back burner and they had chased after other things. This is instructive for us because anytime we reject God to give our hearts to something else, and give our time and attention and devotion, that thing becomes an idol. 
And this is not just an Old Testament thing. Colossians 3, 5 says, Put therefore to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, desiring what you don't have, which is idolatry. We can make idols out of our comfort and our dreams for our lives. Okay, Minda? We can do that. And God... God can shut things down. I have a friend who recently talked to me about, she does real estate, and um, she said that God had set herself against, God had set himself against her in, in just a marked way. And she's not into reading signs and all that kind of stuff. She said, but it was impossible to miss. She said that she had gotten to this place where she kind of just, all she thought about was money. She viewed every person as just a transaction piece and where she wasn't being faithful in, in giving money to God's work. She wasn't really spending time in God's word, wasn't thinking about evangelism. She, and she said that her heart had just gotten far from the Lord. And she said God shut down everything in her life. Said, I mean, she said, I had clients who just disappeared. Not like got raptured, disappeared, but just like never, I mean, they were gone. Like they just, so they had meetings and they just didn't show and had several deals that were like done deals. It just fell through, bottoms out. She said, it was just really, really clear that God markedly in that season of my life set himself against me. And she said that God gave her a bit of a, a wake-up call. And, uh, and, and during that time, she had racked up you know, all kinds of, of, of debt. And then she said it was like the Lord just in his mercy opened her eyes, just like he's doing with this nation here of Israel, and showed her that she, her priorities had been set upon herself. And she said that in his mercy, um, she, she pled for forgiveness, asked for God. Uh, God's grace, and she said it was spooky, like amazing, how all of a sudden, like business deals just started happening. She got enough money to pay off her her debt, and to where she got another job offer for a situation that um, that was going to be steady. And she said, in the midst of it all, I even got to lead somebody to, to come to know Jesus. She goes, it was just it was unbelievable. Now, I, I realize that a text like this and a story like that raises some questions. So I'm going to give you some points of clarification here to, to help you, okay? So the first thing I want us to think about here is that I want to clarify is that getting your priorities in order doesn't mean that all will go well with your life. I'll be really clear about that. I'm not saying, hey, get your priorities right, and all of a sudden go buy you some lottery tickets. Everything's going to be great, okay? That's not at all what I'm saying. You can love God and, 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 and have your, your priorities aligned with him and still suffer great tragedy and great dysfunction in your life and great disappointment. So if you have this cloud that hangs over you and you're one of those who's always looking at where is that sin in my life? Where, what have I done wrong? It's good to check our hearts, but, but do not presume that every time that there's seasons and sometimes really long seasons of hardship that it's because there's sin. Sometimes though, and I think always, those circumstances are intended to to make us look to the Lord. Second clarification, that just because everything is going well in your life doesn't mean that everything's good between you and God. So you've got to remember, these jokers, I mean, for 14 years, they'd been hanging out thinking things are great. They, you know, they built their own plush houses, you know, they're sipping lattes and chardonnays, and they're, I mean, things are, things are nice for them. They are just, they are plush living. But they were not right with God. And just because God is giving you moments of mercy does not mean that everything's okay. So I would encourage you to, to consider your ways and to make sure that you, you know that, 
your circumstances aren't always the best indicator of your relationship with God. Let's examine our hearts. Third clarification. Getting your priorities in order doesn't mean that all is well between you and God. Okay, so just because everything's going really good, the same way, getting your priorities in order doesn't mean that all is well between you and God. So you can get your budget straight, you can give to, you know, to, to help relieve cancer and find a, you know, a cure for, for, for AIDS, and you can, you can recycle, and you can do all kinds of good stuff. Okay, you can get your, you can get, you know, um, you can stop cussing and give uh, money to missions and go on a diet and get everything personally organized. You can do all of that kind of stuff and get your priorities right and still be very, very far away from God. The Pharisees in the New Testament are prime examples of this. They had everything like lock and step right, like it was supposed to be on the outside, but inside their hearts were wicked. And we've got to know that only Jesus can give, can give that. Those qualifications in place, I still want to say, as I think the Bible teaches, that sin has disastrous, disastrous consequences in our lives. We should not underestimate how dangerous it is to continue to neglect the work of God while chasing after sinful indulgences, even things that can be painted as good things. I mean, I have a friend who he works an insane amount of hours because he never thinks that he's going to have enough to provide for his family. And just from the outside watching, you can see that he's not spending time with his family and he's not leading them close to the Lord because he's so consumed with a good thing of providing. We need to be very, very careful. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Scriptures do not teach karma, but the Bible does teach that life is rigged. It is. Sin destroys our lives. And God is opposed to the proud. And that's exactly what we've seen here. Which naturally leads us to verse 7. Where God reminds them once again, Consider your ways. Stop doing what you're doing and consider your ways. What are you living for? What are you investing your lives in? What? Just think about it. Because all of history is moving to a moment when everybody's going to stand before God Almighty. So if you're not a Christian in here this morning, listen, we're really glad that you're here. We have non-Christians all the time who come in and say, I just want to kind of check this thing out, or I'm trying to see what, what God might be doing. Well, listen, we are glad you're here. We think there's no better place for you to be. But please hear me. All of life is moving to a moment. It is moving to a meeting with your maker where everything that you've ever done, thought, and said, every motivation will be laid bare before him and there's nowhere to hide. And there's no human being who is as good as God. We are all, everybody in here is messed up. Because of that sin, there is an eternal judgment that waits for every person who has not had their sins forgiven. But God in his mercy sent his son Jesus to die upon the cross that there he would receive the judgment and the wrath that we deserved and then he rose from the dead and he promises that anybody, no matter how bad you've been or how good you think you've been, that God says anybody who will turn to me, 
you will repent from your sins and trust in Christ, you will be born again. God will give new life. He will wash you clean and reconcile you with him. Consider your ways. And for those of us who are Christians, who have been bought by the blood of Christ, and who are following after him, we too need to consider our ways to see if we are investing our lives in the things that please him. And that's what God tells them in verse 8. He calls for them to repent. He says, go up to the hills, just like you have been doing, and bring wood, just like you have been doing, and build the house, unlike you've been doing, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. God calls them to refocus their efforts. You still got to go to work. Keep doing it. You still got to earn money. You still got to put bread on the table. You still got to do all the things you're doing. But why are you doing what you're doing? And now he calls for this readjustment of the heart to where it goes from storing up treasures on earth to now storing up the treasures in heaven. And he calls them, he invites them into the great joy of living for God's pleasure and for his glory. He says, I will find pleasure in this house. I will be glorified in this. And it is there, it is in living for him and that purpose that we ultimately find our greatest joy. Listen, I I tried it really hard the other way. Um, my, my life before the Lord, I mean, I indulged in everything that there was. And yes, sin is not, I mean, sin is fun. That's why, that's why people do it. You don't have to, like, get commands to go and sin. Like, it, we do that because there's some kind of reward there in the moment. But it is so fleeting. And I tell you that in Christ, there is this ab- abiding. And sometimes there's dark clouds, yes. But a lot of times there's dark clouds. But there is this, this peace that passes understanding. And there is this joy that cannot be stolen. And there is this this security in Christ that the world and everything that it can give you will never, ever be able to provide. There is one supreme priority, and it is the glory and the pleasure of God that we are to be committed to. There's there's really nothing else that lasts. Everything else, just as he did with them and blew it away on that last day, it will all be gone. And whatever is done for Christ will last. Consider your ways, he says. Let us seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and everything else will be given as well. So now the second, a much shorter point, we see in this last little bit here in chapter 1 of 12 through 15, where God calls them, after they've considered their problem with priorities, to now, after they've repented, to commit to doing God's work in God's strength. Commit to doing God's work in God's strength. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Verse 13, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. This is his next message to them. I am with you, declares the Lord. Verse 14, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So, so God has he's put it on them, and now he's calling them to, to look to this great promise that he gives them. He sends his messenger there at the end Uh, of verse 12, notice that when they hear this message, what it does to them. Look at the end of verse 12. It says, the people feared the Lord. 
See, that was absent before. They just, God, God was there. Yeah, we're God's people. We got the t-shirts. We got fish on the car. Got what, veggie tails, whatever you think. Is. Like, like we, we're God's people, okay? But, but God says, listen, we're not acting like my people. So God confronts them, and now they fear him. Where they, they, they rightly tremble before him. This, this fear doesn't become a paralyzing fear, but it is this right reverence where we realize that God is greater than us and that God knows better than us and that his purposes are better than our purposes. It's a humility before him, like when you stand before a great mountain and you know your place. That is what happened to Israel. Their hearts, their heart posture was made right before God. And they feared him. And rather than being debilitating, fear, it moved them to obedience. It moved them to obey the voice of the Lord. They repented and they responded by working on his house again. And the response to their their repentance comes with this promise in verse 13. I am with you, declares the Lord. So God forgave him. I mean, like, in a moment, he forgave him. I'm, I'm taking the whooping off of you and now I am coming I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to be with you. And I need you to know like that is how, how quickly the Lord delights. He does not delight in, in bringing pain into our lives. He delights in bringing fulfillment and joy. He does. So God forgave them, and he said, I am with you. And then notice in verse 14 and 15, he sovereignly moved in their hearts to trust him and step out in obedience. It says that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, and he stirred up the spirit of Joshua, and he stirred up all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord. God moved in his people, and he opened their eyes, and he gave them strength, and he gave them courage, because it takes courage to step out and to do what God called them to do. And later on, I encourage you to read Ezra chapter 5 and 6. Uh, it kind of gives the historical account of, of what happened here. That after they start rebuilding, uh, the Persians come back and they say, Hey, what you doing? Who told you that you could rebuild the temple again? And uh, they said, Hey, listen, buddy, you're going to have to take it up with God because God told us to do this. Um, and in the text, it says that the eye of their God was on them. God had promised his presence, and he had provided it. So the Persians went back, they did some research, and they found out that actually, in chapter 1 of Cyrus, or chapter 1 of uh, Ezra, that Cyrus had given an edict, yes, they can rebuild the temple. So this Persian king not only says they're allowed to build, but he says, I'm going to fund the whole deal, here's a blank check, and anybody who opposes them, we're going to tear down their house, we're going to take out one of the beams, we're going to impale them, and we're going to turn their house into a latrine. It's really bad, okay? Um, but, I mean, in a moment, God just turns the tables. And can you imagine what that would have been like for God's people to see that and to experience that and to see God work in their life? And they almost missed it. They almost missed it because their hearts were hardened against God and because they loved their lives so much. And they were clinging to all these fleeting things with all they had. But God in his mercy intervened, and he drew them to himself. God comforted them with his, um, his presence. He gave them this, this, this conviction about their, their priorities. 
and he said, I am with you. And that is what God has always done and will always do with his people. Noah, get on the boat, and I'm with you. Abram, leave Ur. I'm going to the land. I will show you, and I'm with you. Moses, you got a stuttering problem? That's fine. I made the mouth. I am with you. Let's go. David, you're getting chased by a crazy King Saul? Listen, I am with you. Zerubbabel, you got some Persians? I got it. No problem. I do with nations what people do with spoons. I'm going to shut that deal down. I'm going to turn it around. It's going to be a good deal because I am with you. And that is the same exact promise that God gives his people today. As he sends us out to do his work, we go in this promise that God gave to the disciples when he told them out, told them to, to go out and to build his church. He said in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so I run this thing. I'm the king. Go, therefore, and make disciples or followers of Jesus. Make them of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is the promise that we have as God's people as we go out to do what God has called us to do. He says, what I want you to do is take that gospel message that we talked about earlier. The fact that, that everybody is going to be judged before God, that's the reality that you're going out into. And right now, actually John 3 says that everybody is condemned. So it's not like a die with your fingers crossed, let's see what happens. But no, it's a like, this is what it is. Everybody's condemned. Take this gospel message out and tell them that if they will turn away from their sin and they will trust in the grace of the king who died for them and rose from the dead, that he will forgive their sins. That amnesty right now is available to any who will turn and repent. Go tell them. And listen, people are going to hate you because they hated me. And there's going to be opposition. And there may be times when you need to flee from one city to another. But listen, the work does not stop because I am with you until the very end of the age. And there is no greater thing than taking the gospel of the living Lord Jesus, believing it for ourselves, having our hearts and our affections transformed to love the God who gave his son for us, that we would know him and love him more and be more devoted in our own personal lives. And then to take that same gospel and to, to unite with other brothers and sisters in local church, like this local church, where we, we build up each other and help one another to fight sin and to love God and to live for his purposes. And then together to take that gospel out for the rest of our lives to the ends of the earth to help people who right now are on their way to a hell of judgment. And to tell them that there, there is a heaven of joy that comes in Christ. Turn Trust, come unto him. That is the call of the gospel. That is the work of the church. And that is what we are to be about until the end of the age. That means until we die or until Jesus comes back. So we should, we should consider our ways. We should consider our ways. We all live busy lives. We all have jobs, or at least want to have jobs. We work diligently, and that is a good godly thing to work hard. We need to care for our needs and for the needs of others. But at the same time, we must guard our hearts from committing our lives to building our own kingdoms. Because every kingdom crumbles except the kingdom of God. So what you do is you take an inventory of your life. You time, talents, treasures. Time, I get seven days a week. The first one is God's. No matter what happens... 
on that day, I am, I am committed to the Lord. I'm going to fellowship with his people. I am, I am there. That day is, it is the Lord's day. It's his. Then, there's 24 hours in each, each day. So I'm going to give the Lord the best, maybe say, we, you say an hour. And whether you do it an hour at a time. Or, and an hour is not like the magic number that you do that and everything's going to be great. But, you know, 20 minutes here, three times a day, whatever it may be. But you're going to take time where you're going to step away from all the craziness that is happening. And you're going to make time. You're going to make time like, like that 3 o'clock in the morning fishing trip or like that tea time or like you got tickets to go to whatever it is you want to see, like that kind of commitment. We're going to set that a time aside to read God's word and pray and ask him to change our lives. And relationships, listen, we're going to build into relationships that matter. We're going to have all kinds of friends maybe, but, but we're going to have a couple friends, maybe one or two friends who we're going to run this race together and we're going to disciple one another. We're going to build up each other and help each other to trust God's promises. And we're going to fight against sin together. We're going to do that, and, and we're going to make a priority that the people that God's placed around me in my neighborhood, my workplace, wherever it may be, we're going to have them in our homes, and we're going to be hospitable, and we're going to share the gospel. Like, we, we do an inventory of our lives, and we see, is there areas of disobedience? And start with the big stuff, you know, don't kill people, and then, like, don't, don't no adultery, or don't flirt with adultery, or don't, don't lie, or don't, you know, whatever it may be, and, and you, we do an examination of our hearts and our lives, and we say, are there things right now that are, that are, that are evil in me. And we do that in the context of community because we can be real deceived about what we see in the mirror. We need other people to see our blind spots. We need that and we do that together. And then, with our talents, we say, other people ask, what do you see that I might be able to do for the, to serve the, the purposes of God? Help me to see that. And then we, we commit to God's work and God's strength that together, as long as God gives life, that we're committed to sharing the gospel. That that's what we're about. And that we pray that God would do what he did in the days of Haggai. We pray for revival. We pray that God would save people who right now are still passed out drunk, who right now are, are doing all kinds of other things. I don't even paint pictures, but you can imagine, like right now, like who hate God, just like you did and just like I did. That right now who are opposed to him, that we would pray that next week, or next month, or next year, or the decades to come, that would fill this place and all kinds of other churches like this that preach the gospel. The churches would be filled because God did a work in our day. Pray to that end. Live to that end. And trust God to that end. For there is nothing greater than the kingdom of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truths. We thank you for your son. We thank you for his death and resurrection and the great hope that we have in him and the wonderful kingdom purposes and promises that you've called us into. So God, wherever we are in this journey with you, we pray that you would meet us there and that you would help us to consider our ways. Lord, if we are deceived about where we are with you or in life, God, give us humility to see things rightly. God, we pray that you would open hearts, even now, for your glory and for your pleasure. Build your church for your namesake. Father, we, we pray this and we plead for this, knowing that you are able and trusting that you are with us to the very end of the age. In the name of Christ.